0: Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host Andrew Schistel, joining the show today from Tunisia. And this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today, Professor Louise Steele joins the show for a conversation that's going to explore what scholars know about Cyprus during the Late Bronze Age. Louise Steele is a professor in the School of Humanities and Social Sciences at the University of Wales, Trinity, St. David, based in Wales. She is the director of the project, Excavations at Aradio, a Late Bronze Age farming settlement in Cyprus. She has written numerous publications over her career, including authoring the book, Cyprus Before History, From the Earliest Settlers to the End of the Bronze Age, which was published by Duckworth Books. And Professor Steele joins the show today from the UK. Welcome to the show, Louise. Hi, Andrew. So we chatted about this briefly before we started, Louise, but I want to make sure we get it into the episode as it fits the context of what we're chatting about today. So when when you reference the late Bronze Age in the context of Cyprus, what period of time are we speaking about?
1: Uh, We're talking about the, uh, from around about 1700 BC to about 1050 BC.
0: Okay. So let's chat about that period today, Louise.
1: (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay, so. Um,
0: Okay. Oh, I want to ask, but I want to ask a question. I want to, I want to, I want to kick it off with a, with a background context question. So um, can you create, so can you create sufficient background and context for the conversation that we're having, and then we're gonna obviously work our way into the details. Can you share what life was like on Cyprus during the Late Bronze Age?
1: Okay, um, Cyprus, it depends really where you were living. Um, the beginning of the Late Bronze Age in Cyprus was a very turbulent period. And we have got evidence for a massive um, movement of settlement. And the ancient settlements of the early Middle Bronze Age were abandoned. Uh, we've got movements uh, away from the hinterland towards the coast. Uh, we've also got um, evidence from mass burials and evidence for violent destructions of some settlements. So at around about 1700, 1600, it probably wasn't that much fun. Um, but we've also got a massive change in the way of life of the inhabitants of the island in terms of how they were living. Um, the earlier period was uh, very much characterized by egalitarian communities, large villages. Um, And we see from about the, certainly by the 15th, 14th century, we see the establishment of large coastal towns. The most famous of these is Enkmi, but a number of other others have been um, excavated. And these towns are very much organized in lines, very similar to uh, Canaanite towns in the in Levant, so we see grid formation uh, of buildings, um, we see the introduction of Canaanite um, water systems, uh, the ways of um, channeling water around the, around the cities, um, containing water in wells and things. And we see a new way of life, a new type, a new material culture, um, the introduction of um, new status symbols such as cylinder seals And um, Cyprus is increasingly incorporated in uh, um, the cosmopolitan lifeways of the East Mediterranean in trade exchange diplomatic ventures. So so Cyprus goes through a massive change at the beginning of the Late Bronze Age. um, But by the 14th and 13th century, Cyprus is really one of the major players in terms of trade and exchange in the East Mediterranean. Um, and the reason for this is the massive copper supplies on the island which are located in the foothills of the Trodos Mountains. And um, we, see, we see exploitation of this copper from a mass, on a massive scale uh, from the beginning of the Late Bronze Age and the trade of this copper from the centers such as Enkomi. So that's really the background, but in the hinterland, the site that I've been working at, Erediu, it's very different. It's not uh, urban communities. It's still small village communities, still farming ways of life. Um, so so it sort of really depends on where you are as to what sort of contact you had with external people and, and how much in the ways of, of exotic luxuries coming from abroad are going to affect your way of life.
0: Places like Mycenae, various places on the island of Crete, in this period of time, at some point had palatial buildings. Do any palatial buildings, did any palatial buildings show up on Cyprus during the Late Bronze Age?
1: Uh, That is a very good question, because all these surrounding cultures, the Hittites, the Minoans, the Mycenaeans, the Canaanites, the Egyptians all have palaces. In Cyprus, we don't really have evidence for palaces. There are um, a number of very large buildings that have been excavated. um, Probably the best known of these is a place called Palabasos, which is on the south coast. And um, a lovely large building with Ashland Masonry. And Masonry was excavated in the 1980s, and early 1990s. Um, This is on a tripartite, plan there's a central courtyard and there's definitely evidence for trade and exchange um, beyond beyond cyprus and lots of luxuries being being accumulated around building 10 and also central storage um, there's a on the left-hand side of the building on the um west side of the building there's a massive pithos hall um with um I think about 50,000 liters capacity, storage capacity in the Pythoi. Uh, so something very similar to what you might see in palaces in, in Crete, um, but not at the same scale. And it's, um, the excavator has bought it, calling it um, a palace. And there's another site, a place called Alasa, um, which is in the south of Cyprus, um, just slightly inland, very, very close to um, Kurion and uh, Alisar, another massive Ashla building has been excavated, and that one possibly looks slightly more palatial. It's got um, water systems which are reminiscent of Knossos, but there really isn't any evidence of kings or queens or palaces on Cyprus, there's just these large large buildings that we don't really know what they did, um, other than in the south they seem to have been administrative. So so it's a sort of, not really, rather than a yes or a no, it's a, we're not quite sure what these buildings were.
0: Do scholars believe that there was one civilization during this period of time or multiple different civilizations, whether at the same time on, on the island or at different times throughout the period? Can you expand on what, what is known about civilization uh, and, 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 and governance uh, during this period of time on Cyprus?
1: That's, that's a really good question. Um, and again, um, in comparison to the surrounding regions where we've got texts that we can read so we know the languages, um, we, don't, we have texts um, and my friend and colleague Pippa Steele has been working on these. Um, these are written in a script called Cipro Minoan. Um, for the most part, these are quite short texts. There's only a small number of um, tablets that have been found on the island. So we know that there are these large buildings like Building 10 with centralized storage, um, and we know and these are found at a number of sites, um, and we know that there is some writing system in operation on the island. Um, but we haven't got the, the depth of um, information that uh, you get through the palaces in the Aegean or in the Levant. Um, in terms of the culture and the civilizations who actually lived in Cyprus, there's a tendency to assume that it's um, a, a single culture, and certainly in terms of the ways in which people lived, um, it looks very similar. They're used in the same sort of material culture, so every Cypriot probably would have had their own white slip, hemispherical bowl, or what is also known as a milk bowl, which would have been their eating, drinking vessel. They would have been using basing ware, these lovely basement very delicate cups and jugs, um, as serving vessels, and plainware um, pottery for everyday sort of common usage in the kitchen and, and storage areas. So, in terms of of what they're doing in the household and in, in the houses that have been excavated, it looks very, very similar, um, but. Um, there are regional variations, every, every bit of the island does things slightly differently. And um, another colleague and friend Priscilla Keswani has argued that um, there is a distinct difference between um, the east and northern part of the island um, characterised by enchemy, which she sees very much as a sort of a new, a new player from the Late Bronze Age, where, where she argues that you have um, small competing groups of people in, in a sort of heterarchy, so um, some people may be in charge of copper production, other people in charge of trade, um, other people in charge of procuring um, farming, farming goods, um, different types of manufacture, and, and they're not hierarchically organized, they're sort of working together and competing against each other, whereas in the south of the island are places like Alissa, and Calabasos, she sees a, a much longer tradition of habitation in these areas and the, these large central buildings, such as Building 10 uh, at Calabasos, which she sees as being more centralized and hierarchical. So, so there's sort of different ways of governing Cyprus. Um, in terms of who else is on the island, um, we do know that Cypriots or people who speak Cypriot Manon, um live and work in Ugarit. And, there are tr- sort of hints of people from Ugarit living and working, certainly at places like um, Enkami. so you get um, texts written in Ugarit, um, and occasionally you get Hittite texts, very small things, there's a lovely ring, an inscribed ring um, of silver with a Hittite inscription on it in um, Hala Teke on the south coast. So you do get sort of indications of other people being on the island, and I suspect that actually, in terms of who were living in the major city centers, Enkmi, Halasultanteke, Kition, Kalabasos, these would have been very cosmopolitan and mixed. You would have had Egyptians, Canaanites, um, Hittites, um, Mycenaeans all sort of living and working alongside each other, as well as the Cypriots. But in terms of who the Cypriots were, they're very elusive, they're sort of hiding in the background and, and we just get glimpses of them from their material culture.
0: So these different civilizations, states, communities that you mentioned, Louise, is, yeah. is there evidence that some of these different groups, like the people commonly known as the Mycenaeans or people from Egypt, etc., is there any evidence that these people lived on the island during this period of time? In a substantial way, or is the evidence pointing, I guess, and or is the evidence pointing more that there was more intermittent or transient trade and in interactions between the different cultures?
1: Uh, I think in certain places like um, Enkmi, you do see um, some sort of hints that there would have been um, non-Cypriots living there. I mean, there's so many cultural parallels to what's going on in Ugarit in on the Syrian coast, and you see the same way of burying the dead in certain places you've got these amazing um, built built stone tombs underneath the houses in Ugarit, which are standard, and there's a little area in Enkmi where you've got some four or five of these um, stone built tombs and uh, there's other things, you know, the occasional Ugaritic inscription on, on a, a personal bowl, a, a silver bowl. Um, so, so there's sort of little indications, and I think some of the text from Ugarit would give um, support to this idea of people from Ugarit living in Cyprus. Um, Egyptians are very difficult to, to track down. There's a lot of Egyptian material in Cyprus, um, in particular a few sites at Enkmi and at Halas or Um, And this material tends to be Ramesside. so there's, um, you get inscriptions of Ramses II and Seti I, and you get um, the Cypriots become very interested in um, shiny Egyptian things, scarabs and fingerings and um, Egyptian faience. But this seems to be quite late, but there is one object which really stands out, and that's um, from Enkmi, uh, I can't remember which tomb it's in. I think it's, um, but there's one tomb where there is an Egyptian, what's known as a, a Nuzek collar, um, which was found in a, in one tomb in Enkemi, which looks very unusual as a, as a gift. And Liz Goring suggested in her PhD that this could mark a, an Egyptian burial, but I tend to think that Egyptians don't get buried overseas. Um, Mycenaeans, I, I'm sure Mycenaeans are there. You get Mycenaean figurines turning up and Lisa French many years ago suggested that a Mycenaean figurine would mark um, a Mycenaean. I'm not necessarily sure that I would totally agree with that, um, but there, there's this sort of um, this range of objects which might show that Mycenaeans are there, um, whether they're there just because they, they've, they've got a trading enterprise. Um, but again, it, it just really depends on how you read the material culture. The material culture is telling us something about these people, but it's also very difficult to read. I mean, you do also get um, there's a, an amazing um, ritual site in the northeast of Cyprus, a place called Jakovos very near Enkomi, um, and it's a looks like a single period sort of ritual um, deposit. And one of the objects that was just found there was a little um, imported um, hematite cylinder seal, and it has a um, a cuneiform inscription on it. Um, so um, that's the sort of thing that might suggest that you're looking at somebody from from the Near East coming and making this deposit and doing it in a meaningful way, but it's uh, again, it's it's not a straightforward yes or no. So, but I I've, I just believe because the towns are so cosmopolitan and just because of what you see in other places where you've got the textual evidence to give a stronger foundation that there would have been this mix of people living there and settled there, but um, they've they're quite elusive on the ground.
0: And so in those instances, are those cases where evidence is showing that it's a a, the vast minority of inhabitants on the island are from different places in the in the region and or has there been or is it is it much much larger than than that smaller percentage? And has there been any cases where are there any cases where actual settlements were found that are predominantly cited to a civilization uh, with providence, not on the island, like like a place like Egypt or the people commonly known as the Hittites, etc.
1: Yeah, um, really, Throughout most of the Late Bronze Age, um, Cyprus has this this, this very standard material culture. There might be certain variations in pottery as you go around the island, but it it looks that there there was a sort of a way of being a late Cypriot, and late Cypriots did that, whether they lived in towns or in villages, they they shared a common sort of cultural understanding of who they were. Um, They might choose to um, display their status or their wealth or their knowledge of um, other places through imported luxuries, um, cylinder seals very much early on, and then the Egyptian scarabs later on. But there isn't really um, a clear indication that anything other than Cypriot, there's nothing that really stands out and says this isn't Cypriot. The, the one site that probably has been identified as by the excavator as being not Cypriot um, comes at the very end of the late Bronze Age, um, dates to around about 1200 BC, and this is the site of Mar Palais Castro. It's um, it's on a little peninsula, jutting out into the sea, um, on the west coast of Cyprus, um, a few miles north of uh, modern day Paphos, and this site is is a, ve- a very strange site. Um, it's it's very much protected. There's a huge fortification wall, a cyclopean wall, protecting um, the settlement at Marpalay Castro. And there's certain new things that are found there, and, and this is um, this relates to a phenomenon that we start to see spreading throughout Cyprus in the 12th century: new ways of um, of doing things in the settlements, and we we see um, large buildings with. Um, with a, a large hall and a central hearth. Well, there's, the Cypriots in the late Bronze Age didn't use hearths. So they they had other ways of heating their homes, so they didn't have the central hearth. This seems to be something introduced to the island from Mycenae. Um, and this large hall seems to be very similar to a Megaron in in Mycenaean Greece. It's a place where people would gather and feast. So there's evidence of um, feasting equipment um, certain types of pottery and some of this pottery is locally made, um, but in the Mycenaean style, what we would call white painted wheel made three pottery, very ugly name for a very beautiful type of pottery, um, but you get Mycenaean craters for mixing wine and Mycenaean deep bowls for, for drinking the wine. Um, so this is the one thing which looks a little bit odd and doesn't look Cypriot, um, and Um, as the 12th century progresses, you see more of these, these half buildings as examples in um, Enkomi, for example, of um, these large central halves, and also this change in pottery around about 1200 BC, the traditional Cypriot wares gradually fall out of use. Um, You see this um, locally made Mycenaean pottery, Mycenaean style pottery, um, some of which is very beautifully decorated with pictorial decoration. Um, and we also see a change in the cooking ware, and that, that for me is the most interesting thing. It's sort of um, you, the traditional Cypriot cooking pots disappear, and we see new cooking pots, which are similar in shape to Aegean cooking pots. And I, I believe also there's the um, introduction of new types of um, textile equipment, which again seems to have links back to the Aegean So so around about 1200 maybe you can look at non-Cypriots really establishing themselves and bringing their own way of life with them. But this becomes very much embedded in um, Cyprus in the 12th century and Cypriots adopted as well.
0: Okay. And I wanna clarify a point you made about the, the pottery changing, Louise. And you said that at some point in time it becomes, it became more associated To Mycenaean culture, what what approximate year did that occur?
1: Um, It's dated to around about 1200 BC. So the the 12th century pottery assemblage looks very different to the 13th and 14th century, which is very standard. Um, You get Mycenaean imports always um, from about the 15th century. Mycenaean imports are always found in Minoan imports but it's the, um, from my, most of the late Bronze Age, what we'd have is plainware, um, ware, and then paperware would be a white slip and base ring. And from about 12, 1200, we see increasing uh, production of um, this mycenaeanizing pottery, white, white painted wheel made three, and gradually the in, indigenous pottery, the, the white slip and base ring falls out of use. Um, it doesn't happen immediately. So um, places like Halasort and where we have got some really good 12th century levels, you do get a, a little bit of um, of a sort of, um, you get vestiges of the earlier types of pottery, but gradually the ceramic assemblage looks more and more Mycenae or more and more Greek, Greek- Greekified or Aegeanized. Um, and also in places like Enkmi, um, in the sanctuaries, as you move into the 12th centuries, you get a change in the way in which people are worshipping, you get some um, people dedicating large quantities of um, small little figurines, which are more similar to maybe Mycenaean figurines than, than um, stuff that was made lo- um, locally previously, so these, um, these uh, small little figurines. And, and that, again, seems to be a new way of worshipping, a new way of interacting with the gods, um, which comes alongside the, these other changes.
0: What do scholars, how do scholars reconcile that information, these different cultural data points that you described there? What, what, what do scholars make, make of that? What, 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 what do scholars believe is happening on a more macro level?
1: Okay, that's a that's a really interesting question, and it probably depends on when in time you're asking the scholars. So the traditional narrative, certainly the one that I was taught as an undergraduate was that um, uh, there was a Mycenaean colonization of Cyprus. So there's this idea of um, a Mycenaean colonization of Cyprus sort of wholesale around about 1200 B.C. and by 1050 B.C. Um, the establishment of what are known as Greek, um the Greek city kingdoms of the Iron Age. And that was the standard accepted uh, narrative. Um, and it used um ancient texts as well. There's um the Greek foundation legends written in the fifth century, which um talk about Homeric heroes landing on the island. So so that was that was the bundle that was um put together. Uh, for explaining this sort of Mycenaeanization on, of the material culture. Um, more recent scholars have um, gone to a more nuanced way of um, reading this uh, this material culture. And so there's a, there is an understanding that obviously people do move around. 1200 BC was a period of great stress in the East Mediterranean. Uh, we've got the, the so-called Sea Peoples. Back in Egypt, you've got the destructions from the Hittites all the way down the, um, the in the north, all the way down the coast of the Levant. You've got the di- disappearance of destruction of the Mycenaean um palaces in the west. Cyprus does actually relatively well. There are some destructions, but um Cyprus just has a, a really nice 12th century and sort of weathers the storm really well. Um, and there's no major um settlement change. And and what archaeologists are tend to argue now is that um, more for an an acculturation um, in Cyprus, uh, So Cypriots learning new ways of doing things from possibly people arriving on the island and bringing new ways of doing things, um, and just some sort of cultural change um, on the island where you see some traditional Cypriot things persisting, but new ways of doing things being introduced um, in the 12th, 12th and 11th centuries, and then then everything changes in the Iron Age. So it's, it's a, an interesting and it's a very hotly debated um, topic. There, there is quite a lot of controversy around it. It's, um, it's very similar to the narratives surrounding the Philistines in the extreme Southern Levant. Um, but we haven't had the same level of um, interaction with the, the skeleton remains from this period to see if there's any sort of evidence for a population movement.
0: Were they seafaring?
1: Oh yes, the um, the Mycenae, oh, Sorry, the Cypriots were definitely seafaring. Um, one of the things I've been quite interested in is, is their relationship with water. That um, and what we see um, in the late Bronze Age is quite strong evidence that they're moving around. So we we, we see them turning up in Ugarit, Um It's been argued that they are the sort of the mediators of trade between the Aegean and the Near East. And certainly um, it looks as though Mycenaean pottery, for example, is being processed in Cyprus before it reaches the Levant. Um, And probably the most persuasive evidence comes from the temple site at Kition on the south coast. You've got um, massive trading centers along the coast, which shows their Their relationship with the certainly other seafaring peoples. So um, in the 12th century at the temple site at Kition, uh, we get these lovely little graffiti um, of boats on the outside of the temple and um, these these carry on down into the Iron Age but they're definitely starting in the late Bronze Age and one of the nice suggestions is that these are little graffiti left by sailors or merchants either to ask for a successful voyage or to so give thanks for a successful voyage at the temple at, um, at Kityon, which would have been a major trading center very close to the, the coast. So, so that's one, um, one nice bit of evidence. And there are sort of occasional, not often, but there are occasional representations of boats from, from late Bronze Age Cyprus. There's um, some lovely clay models of boats um, found in tombs. Um, a couple in, from a site on the north coast, a place called Kazaphony, um, and two of the um, some little clay boats have been found there. And also from the site of Moroni in the south of the island, um, which was excavated by the British Museum in the 19th century. Um, and there's a wonderful um, crater from Ugarit, a Mycenaean crater, which shows a scene of merchants. Been um, sailing to Cyprus, well presumably to Cyprus, but the the merchants are standing on the upper deck, and you can see the the sailors on the on the lower deck, sort of doing the rowing or whatever they're doing. And there is a, a lovely mast and, um, and and sails. So so there's the sort of occasional little indications as to the seafaring way of life, um, which turn up in in sort of odd parts of the material culture. Maybe not as rich as in other places, but Cypriot um, iconographies were only limited. They're sort of, um, they 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 show their inspiration in other ways.
0: Okay, religion. You spoke about, you touched on religion earlier. Can you expand on what's known about religious orientation during this period of time? The, the pertinent points that you want to make sure gets into the episode on what what's what's known about worship in this period of time
1: okay yeah um so religion in cyprus is one of the areas which i really think merits a, a lot more research um, one of the key um aspects of religion that seems to be repeated throughout the island is um um an emphasis on the bull and the importance of the bull in in separate religion um the doesn't seem to be It's very different, again, to the surrounding regions, there isn't one way of building a temple. Um, and we don't know much about the, the gods or goddesses or spirits who were worshipped. Um, but a number of important um, temples have been excavated around the island. In the 19th century, the temple at um Palais Paphos, a place called Kouklia, was excavated and This looked like it was a massive, massive temple. There was was a large pillared hall, there was a large courtyard. So it looks like gatherings of large quantities of people was important. Um, And then there's always a sort of an inner sanctum that people don't go into. Um, And there's what's known as an aniconic image or a baithel, a large um, basalt um, stone which looks like it's just been rubbed over generations. Uh, and that's thought to go back at least to the late Bronze Age. So that's that's one of the sort of finest temples, but also um, very badly preserved. Um, the probably the two famous cult images um, from Cyprus are both from Enchemy, and these are bronze statuettes which stand maybe about 20-30 centimetres high. Um, one represents a man. In a short uh, sort of kilt or tunic um, and he's wearing a horned headdress and he's known as the horned god and the other appears to be standing on what's been identified as an ingot um, and he's got his hand up in a smiting pose holding a spear um, and he's known as the ingot god. We don't know really anything about them other than you've got these these bronze representations. Um, What we do see in Large well preserved temples, such as at Mirtu Pagades in the north, is that courtyards are really important. So, there does seem to be this sense of gathering um, of um, worshippers as being important, and also feasting, um, consuming alcohol in particular. Um, large quantities of um, drinking vessels are found in association with the courtyard. Um, animal bones, such as deer, um, are found. Again, it's in association with the Courtyard at Temer there's and there's a massive altar topped by Horns of Consecration. Um, we don't know exactly how it used, but it seems to be the central device there. Um, in other places, the cult seems to be maybe a little bit more um, secretive and more exclusive rather than inclusive. And I'm thinking here in particular of the Ingot God Sanctuary, where um, you've got a large enclosed building um, but this, uh, and um, you've got this large room that people would go into, and there's um, a sort of um, curtain wall down the middle, so maybe separating off sort of an area of knowledge and an area of, of um, worshippers, and huge quantities of um, animal bones, in particular uh, bull skulls or bucrania, which um, appear to be worn as masks, and large quantities of um, scapulae from bulls, which appear to which are interpreted as musical instruments. Um, but that seems to be it's a very odd sight, and I, I'm sort of beginning to think of that as being a sort of a place of mysteries or a place where only the, the initiates would go. But again, there's that emphasis on the bull. Um, it's quite yeah. frustrating when you look at the Canaanites and you know who they worshipped, and we you know who the Mycenaeans worshipped. Um to, to look in Cyprus where we, we've got really rich evidence, but it's really hard to make sense of it. What um, we do see people dedicating at these sanctuaries um, tend to be luxury objects, you know, high status things, um, jewellery, cylinder seals, things like that. Um, but um, rather than figurines, figurines is something quite new as you move into the 12th century. So th- it's an interesting area um, that one sort of feasting, drinking, um, bull sacrifice, and gatherings in courtyards. I think that's probably what we can really say about it. And maybe processions as well. You've got lovely bronze fans which sew processions towards the sacred tree, people bringing um, various different types of objects um, as gifts, horns uh, of consecrate, not horns or consecrate, sorry, um, ingots and other sort of luxuries and maybe animals on the shoulders sort of bring these things and offerings. Um, but other than that, and music, um, you've got people playing playing the lyre as well. So so there's sort of things around the edges that we can look at and we can we can make some sort of access to what they were doing, but who they were worshipping remains very hidden.
0: Okay. It remains a mystery at this uh, at this present time. Definitely. So Working our way to wrapping up the conversation today, Louise, is there something we haven't covered that you want to make sure gets into the episode about this topic that we haven't covered, or is there something we have covered but you want to you want to emphasize before we uh, before we wrap up today?
1: I think one thing I'd like to mention is a little bit more about the interconnections of Cyprus because. There is so much evidence for Cypriots engaging with other peoples, um, and this is uh, through exports from Cyprus as well as imports. I think, I think the re- evidence is so rich that it's um, w- worth noting. So do you want me to talk about that?
0: <laughs> Please. Yeah, yeah. If you want, yeah, whatever whatever you think is pertinent that you want to get into the episode on that point, by all means.
1: Oh, um, One of the ways that Cyprus is best known is through its pottery, and um, there are three wares in particular I want to pick out here in terms of trade and exchange. Um, The first is the base ring ware, which um, includes a large number of uh, very beautifully made, very fine um, juglets, which primarily suggested in the 1960s were used for exporting opium. the jury is very much out on that, and probably swinging away from it. Um, but certainly exporting something which is very luxurious um, and in small um, exported in small quantities in these um but very distinctive. It stands out from what we see in the in the Near East and in Egypt. Uh, the white slipware as well, in particular these um, hemispherical bowls, and that's quite interesting because tableware doesn't tend to get exported, but um, um white slipware gets exported in huge quantities. And the red lustrous ware, which again the jury's eyes as to whether this is Cypriot or um Anatolian, but I think the technical, the technological evidences and the um the analysis of the clays is probably pointing towards Cyprus, but Again, you've got this amazing pottery which has been used for transporting precious liquids, um, oils, and nutrients. Um, In particular, you've got these lovely long, um, tall, thin bottles, spindle bottles, and then um, slightly larger um, pilgrim flasks. And this pottery is found throughout the East Mediterranean, in particular, um, from in the north right the way down the coast of the Levant any self-respecting Levantine household would have had access to Cypriot pottery um, and down the Levant um, down the Nile as well uh, found in huge quantities in Egypt um, so it was something which was considered very very desirable and would be exported in huge quantities Um, we also get um, these wonderful little um bull vases made out of base ring, which are found in quite large quantities throughout the Levant as well. And they, you know, they're sort of they're very idiosyncratic, um, maybe being exported for their contents, but there's there's a sense of um the pottery from Cyprus itself being desirable because of its, it stands out from the, the wares that were being used, and certainly by the Canaanites, who had very sort of plain pottery. Um, and one of the most interesting deposits comes from the palace at Alalach. And there's a huge quantity there of base ring wear, including a wonderful, very large, very shiny base ring crater, which is found in the king's palace on um, 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 other items of base ring wear. And it just looks like the stuff was so desirable, even though it's only pottery, that it was considered appropriate to be exchanged to to um. To the rulers in the in the near east and the the king of Alalach um, certainly consumed this with great um, delight so I think there's um, there's a lot more that we can say about the pottery from Cyprus and how it's been exported and how it's been consumed and um, the Cypriots imported stuff from Egypt which is not very well known but we do get Egyptian amphry burning up um, even on my little farming site in the centre of the island, we've got evidence of Egyptian amphorae, but most of them turning up at Halasort and Teke. Um, and Mycenaean and Minoan pottery found in huge quantities throughout the island. It's, um, the, the Cypriots had um, a great desire for this type of pottery. They, in particular, they're interested in little perfume bottles, which um, your average Cypriot would be buried with a perfume bottle. and uh, wealthier Cypriots would also be consuming um, Mycenaean tableware craters and drinking vessels. So there, there's this, um, this wonderful mix of material culture, but ma- primarily seen through pottery, um, which uh, is I think quite um, is unique to Cyprus uh, in this period.
0: In all your work on the island over the years, Louise, what finding via excavations stands out the most for you that you're involved in. So you, you came across, might might have been with the team at the time, but, but it was you observed it, the, the finding. And what, what, st- what stands out for, for you the most, either from a being most fascinated by it, or it being most memorable to you? And why? Okay,
1: um, well I'm I'm going to have to return to my excavations at Terediu in the centre of the island and um, the thing which really stands out for me there is um, a set of pottery that we we excavated a a building, um, an L-shaped building, and there are these two small storage rooms and we found a really intriguing um, set of pottery there which it sort of came out quite slowly and it came out in pieces, but the moment it was um it was restored by our, um, our conservator, um it turned into this amazing assemblage which just tells us about people's engagement with, I suppose, their kitchenalia the 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 pots and pans of everyday life. So we've got a lovely little um pythos, which only stands about 50 centimetres in height. Ours is only half. Um, preserved, and a couple of um, basins, which are about 25 centimeters high, and some jugs and a lovely little um, ladle for scooping out um food, probably from the pithos and put them in the, in the basins. Um, but what really stands out for me is this, that this was daily life. This is what your average Cypriot would have, would have experienced, it's not the, the blingy stuff that we see in the museums, all the wonderful shiny things, which are amazing. But this was this was your average everyday experience of getting food out of your pithos, mixing water, maybe going going to the nearby river to get water and bringing it back in one of the jugs, and um, processing food in in the basins. And then we we also found um, a small number of bowls in adjacent rooms. So you're thinking, well, they're serving it into these these little bowls, and this is what they'd be eating and drinking out of. And that just stands out and um, for me just because it is daily life. It's, um, it's the normal Cypriot who doesn't normally get talked about, but they, they underpin the whole of the late Bronze Age that we, we explore.
0: Okay. It's been really enjoyable speaking with you today, Louise. Thanks for coming on the show and chatting about Cyprus during the late Bronze Age.
1: That's great. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you.
0: So again, everybody, Professor Steele is Director of the project Excavations at Aradio, a late Bronze Age farming settlement in Cyprus. And she is author of the book, as an example Cyprus Before History, from the earliest settlers to the end of the Bronze Age. I'll drop a link to the project and a link to the book in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Louise and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now.